to the International Bus Podcast brought to you by Wordbee. I am your co-host Tanya Faulkner. And this is Robert Rogge. And in today's episode, we have a special guest. His name is Bruno Herman, and he's the Digital Globalization Director at Nielsen. Most of you probably know it. It's a global measurement and analytics company. And Bruno has been working for Nielsen for the past 15 years in all sorts of positions. Um, Bruno is also a contributor for several magazines. He's speaking regularly at conferences and holding workshops. How are you doing, Bruno? Hi, thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Thanks for this introduction. I actually, just to make a small uh, change to your presentation, uh, I, I just stopped being the digital globalization director for Nielsen. I left my I left my job just a few days ago. But I, you're right. I worked for Nielsen for uh, nearly 15 years as a leader for digital globalization efforts and platforms. And um, I'm really glad to be on this podcast with you today. Wow. So you just, so you, that's a big change. Yeah. Like, uh, what, what are you doing now then? And what, what was your role with Nielsen then as globalization director? And now, now what are you moving into instead? My role as digital globalization director at Nielsen was actually to lead global product leadership efforts in terms of digital platforms and digital properties, of course, covering client portals, covering as well applications, anything digital, actually. So my role was really to lead that from an international perspective, making sure that our developers, our designers, and of course, our product leadership teams could have a real global approach, focusing on local experiences with all these products platforms, applications, properties, you name it. And right now, actually, I'm, uh, I'm in transition to a, a new job, which is still to be defined, but uh, I guess it will be defined very soon. Okay, that's exciting. Some new adventures on the horizon for you then. What's the difference then exactly between localization and globalization? And did you work with both localization and globalization at Nielsen, or it was just the globalization? Well, actually, globalization, from my perspective and in my experience, is the overall framework in which localization, translation, internationalization must be managed. So localization is included in globalization, if you will. Having said that, my role at Nielsen was definitely to drive digital globalization efforts, of course, including localization, but also other activities like, you know, uh, maybe a bit more unexpected, like testing, certification, but also word readiness of content. So how to make content as ready as possible for localization to address a number of diff very different markets. So that's the main difference between, from my perspective, of course, between globalization and localization. Globalization is the framework, the set of processes, best practices, uh, tools, workflows that are really necessary to drive the actual execution of, you know, local deployment of products. And localization is the task or the activities uh, related to making those products relevant and engaging for local markets. Mm -hmm. And how do you do that? You said you, it was also making content ready for localization. That was part of your globalization tasks. Is there an easy answer to that? <laughs> There is an easy but long answer to that. So I'm going to make it short for this podcast. <laughs> so the short answer is that the level of word readiness of content 
is really critical to make localization and globalization as a whole time and cost effective. Let me explain with probably an example here. Every time we had to create and deploy a new application or a new platform, it was critical to design and create that platform, that content, in a way that was not too geocentric. In other words, it was not because that platform was created in the U.S. that it had to be too U.S.-centric, because that platform was meant for international markets later on. So making the content for such platforms and properties that have to be deployed internationally ready for localization is a real, I would say, efficiency and cost saver, uh, simply because it makes the whole localization phase which, of course, might be more or less complex depending on the type and the scope of content, really, you know, engaging and really attractive for local markets. And that's why I would say there are a number of activities involved in globalization. And even within localization, you have, as I said, you have the actual translation, the linguistic adaptation, but also the cultural, the functional testing, which is another part of the job. There is a certification in terms of, you know, safety or in terms of client or customer experience management. So all these activities have to be really managed and executed in synchronization with product life cycles. And that's really the challenge, I think, for many people leading or involved in globalization is really to drive and to lead translation, localization, certification, testing in full sync with product life cycles. Uh, it's easy to say, but it's very difficult to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, as an investment, then would you? I, I mean, Nielsen, you're the or you were the you know the the big analytics and metrics company. So, do you have any analytics and metrics that sort of say that all this investment in globalization eventually pays off in greater sales or customer satisfaction? Yes, of course. I mean, everything was data-driven, as you can imagine, with a company like Nielsen. Uh, And even before working for Nielsen, I was was, uh, eager to use data to explain and justify globalization efforts. But, you know, I, I usually say in terms of, you know, metrics that there are three types of cost metrics. There is the cost of doing the right thing. There is the cost of doing the wrong thing. And there is the cost of doing nothing. And these are three very different types of cost. So when a client, uh, like many clients of Nielsen, uh, require uh, their content to be fully localized, to be ready for markets like France, Germany, China, etc., I mean, that's the cost of doing the right thing. It's to make it really cost-effective by investing in making the product really as I said, relevant in engaging for these markets. Uh, When there is no explicit requirement, and sometimes it happens, then, you know, other factors come to play, like competition. What do competitors do? If they do, if they localize products very carefully and very effectively, we should at least do the same and probably do even better than that. And, And there are other factors like local standards. It's not because somebody decided that, you know, a product might be, possibly deployed in English in China, hoping that it's going to work, that it's considered as a business requirement. 
it has to be more than that. In China, people speak Chinese and they do, they do business with a Chinese culture in mind. So it's really important to also take into account all these linguistic, cultural and functional factors that are so important locally. I can talk about probably about functional factors a bit later on because this is typically digital, but definitely, as I said, metrics that we, I've used many metrics depending on, you know, the type of direction that we were taking, but it's also, it's always important really to use metrics and to use real life figures to explain why it's important to invest in uh, globalization to grow globally. That, that's interesting. I mean, and totally understandable that, that there are tons of metrics and analytics that you could probably go into detail here. At some point there, you mentioned at the beginning that you used analytics or metrics to like justify what you were trying to do in, in globalization. And I guess I was wondering, does it feel like even at a, at a larger company that globalization is sort of, do you ever feel like you're on the defensive about the things that you're trying to do? Or is the return on investment so clear that people are just on board? Uh, no, it's never, it, it's, I mean, it, globalization or localization is, is a battle that is never won. We always have to, I wouldn't say uh, to be defensive, but we always have to convince people about the, um, you know, the relevance and, and the impact of doing the right thing, as I said before. Right. Um, and I think, I mean, I've tried a number of ways to capture and measure the effectiveness of globalization, again, in terms of product and content. And I think the best way I've found so far, maybe there are other ways that I haven't found yet, but the best way I've found so far is to always tie these metrics, effectiveness metrics, I mean, to the customer experience or the customer experiences with an S at the end, because there is more than one in the world. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, that's why, you know, customer understanding and customer journeys are so important. These are also two very important activities in terms of globalization leadership, in my opinion, that should be addressed. Understanding customers up front, as I said before, to also, you know, to take into consideration local standards and local practices is, is key, is crucial. And also the customer journey, uh, which is reflecting actually the customer experience end-to-end -end, is a very important one because in a recent uh, presentation with another company, I said that uh, in the digital world, it's very important actually to create and, and globalize content in a snackable way. Snackable content is not a new concept because we are exposed to snackable content all the time, but uh, it's really important to always consider snackable content according to the journey that customers are taking with your product or with your service. Uh, for instance, if the customer is searching for information, that is one type of experience. And content has to be localized and globalized accordingly. If, if a customer who has not purchased yet uh, has to make a decision or influence the decision of other, other people, that is another type of experience. So that's why, you know, linking closely globalization effectiveness metrics to customer experiences and customer journeys is so important. Mm -hmm. oh, that's interesting. I'm curious, just to get this right. So your part or your, your role back with Nielsen, was it more of like an internal globalization thing or globalization in terms of clients and doing it for clients? 
Uh, it was it was both. It was both. Okay. So I was I was leading globalization internally. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that is a very internal role. But everything that we did at Nielsen was for the customers. So the customer, the international customers, were at the center of every decision and every execution of digital globalization. Mm-hmm. So I think that was one of the best facets of my job was also to be involved in uh, creating value for customers, not only internally for our teams, just to know that our products and services were uh, engaging and relevant for a number of different markets, but also to actually care for customers. And that's, that's really important. And I think personally that everyone driving globalization or even simply localization in any organization, regardless of size, should really have that perspective, leading internally to deliver externally. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Well, that's good. Uh, I just wanted to make sure I, I understood right, but that's what I thought, actually. So I wanted to talk about snackable content. And mm-hmm. and I also wanted to mention that uh, this sounds a lot like a job interview, and you're totally hired, Bruno. Yeah, I'm used to this exercise. Uh, I, I've, I've this type of exercise at least once a day now. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, for our next question, what was your biggest failure at Nielsen? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I, I was wondering about snackable content. And um, what type of content do you think is ideal for becoming a content snack? And when should content be a meal? Hmm, Very good question. Well, I would say historically, snackable content was, first of all, used in marketing content, marketing and communications content, because it was a way to create more granular campaigns more granular types of information. For instance, you know, how to get the right message across when a customer is not a customer yet, the customer is searching for a product or the customer is asking for help or the customer is trying to make a decision or after the customer is a customer, which is when a customer needs support because he cannot use a product properly. But, you know, recently when I when I was kind of sharing my presentation uh, in a webinar, the same question came up about what content should be in scope for us to be, I mean, to be snackable. And uh, I said, at this point in time, considering the digital evolution, I would say nearly every type of content should be snackable because it should be mobile, it should be portable, it should be shareable. I mean, there are a number of criteria. It would be too long to probably go through the same presentation I shared a few weeks ago here in this podcast. But definitely, if you look at the profile of digital customers today, they use different types of content all the time, whether it's, as I said before, a website, an application, a chatbot now, or, I mean, the the range of digital content is expanding nearly every month. So I would say... When to go back to your question, when is content a meal? Well, it's at every point, at every stage of the customer journey, starting from when the customer is reaching out to you as a potential supplier of products or services, till is completely satisfied and using your products and services uh, holistically. 
And that's the, probably the biggest challenge uh, with snackable content. And it's also the main reason for making content snackable is to make sure that there is no disappointment, there is no gap, there is no miss in the overall customer experience journey. And, uh, you know, it's a big challenge because of all these micro challenges. Each pipe or each piece of snackable content relates to a micro experience. I mean, as a customer, yourself or all of us, we all have micro experiences because we never purchase a product immediately, I guess. Even when you go to Amazon, you want to see, uh, you know, the feedback from customers, from other customers, I mean. Uh, you want to compare Amazon maybe with Alibaba. So, you know, all these micro experiences, which may last from a few minutes to, till a few hours, have to be taken into account when creating and localizing, globalizing snackable content. Yeah, and it kind of builds an addiction to the snacks too, doesn't it? Like, well, I'm thinking of Scooby-Doo and Scooby Snacks specifically, but I, I think people can get kind of addicted to the snackable content. Um, that, that, and they... That's right. And, and to circle back on your, on your question about the content meal, of course, if you look at different industries right now, like the travel industry or the e-commerce industry, you will find a number of very good examples of effective snackable content. But I like two sites to be used as examples in this case. It's Amazon and Alibaba. These are two very major, powerful e-commerce sites, but with a different, very different history as well. So uh, last year, somebody was asking me, why should Alibaba, for instance, be considered as a very good example of engaging snackable content? I said, well, look at what Alibaba, just like Amazon does, their website, they describe the product, they give you contextual information, they share feedback. I mean, only on one screen of Alibaba or Amazon, you can find a number of different types of snackable content, which may relate to your own experience. Uh, if you are already an Amazon customer, maybe you will not spend a lot of time because you have made your decision. But if you, if you are a first-time customer on Amazon or Alibaba, then you have plenty of content to actually meet your micro-experience requirements. And that's essentially what I said last year. It makes a difference between Alibaba and Aliblabla. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. But do you think that also goes, I mean, that totally makes sense for like e-commerce companies and where you buy online, but what about other enterprises? Well, I, I think it makes sense for most industries now. I mean, look at travel sites, look at automotive sites. They mm -hmm. all have some sort of e-business, if not e-commerce, but e-business components, you know. Even when you go to, let's say, you know, the Mercedes site, you have configurator, you have different types of e-business components, not always leading to e-commerce, but some of them are leading to e-commerce directly. Mm -hmm. So I would say I don't see many industries who could do without snackable content now, except maybe some very specific industries like uh, pharmaceutical sites or, well, it, if, I mean, <laughs> there are very few examples and, and I can cannot think of any particular now. But definitely, I, I think it's, it's something that is tied to the digital way of consuming content. Mm -hmm. uh, snackable, is, as I said, it's tied to, I mean, snackable content is tied to micro-experiences. And why do we have more micro-experiences now than ever before? It's because now we are living in a digital world. And that's what 
makes a difference. I remember, you know, 20 years ago when I was buying my first TV device, the only information I got was a manual on paper. (laughs) (laughs) That's not much to go on. (laughs) So in 20 years, I'm not that old, but in 20 years now, I don't even think about paper manuals. I look at websites, I look at properties, comparing different products between different brands, etc. So micro experiences have grown dramatically with the development and the evolution of digital content in general. Mm-hmm. And the amount of time we spend looking at our screens too, right? It, yeah, it all exactly. goes together, yeah. You're absolutely right. I would say the number of screens and the number of ecosystems. Because I said before, I touched on the functional requirements of local markets. It, it seems to be obvious for many people to say, of course, we need to deliver content in the right ecosystem for every market. But each market, and even the bigger ones, they have a number of different ecosystems. You have the mobile ecosystems, and even within the mobile ecosystems, you have the Android, you have the iPhone, etc. So it's really, really important to also, when you want to understand customers and when you want to engage and delight customers, to really be aware of the number and the type of ecosystems that those customers are in. And it, it applies to every market. I often use China as an example because I, I remember if my for all my programs, we had to sometimes deliver content in 20 or 25 different types of ecosystems. Linguistically, mix of Chinese and English, only Chinese, only English, and then Android, iPhone, etc. So it, it wasn't really a nightmare. It was it was a great type of program, but it cannot be ignored and it has to be addressed up front. It cannot be understood as an option or as, as an afterthought. So that's why the, the time we spend on screens and the number of ecosystems that each of us has to deal with makes the kind of you know, need for snackable content even more critical. Hey, as you know, we like to keep things mostly non-commercial around here, and we like to just stick to interviewing the guests about fascinating subjects. But we would like to take a moment to mention a little bit about WordBee Translator. Uh, WordBee Translator is the translation management system uh, developed by WordBee over the last 10 years. So we are celebrating 10 years now. It's all in one system, so you can uh, manage projects. It also has uh, linguistic tools. It has tools for finance, business analytics, and it's been around for 10 years, so it does pretty much uh, anything you want. Before working for WordBee, I also used WordBee Translator. One of my favorite things about it was actually the invoicing because it made it really easy to manage supplier invoices, create them, and just not have to deal too much with the financial side of things. But other customers appreciate other things, like for example, it's a native cloud technology, so it's really collaborative. You know, you can keep track of what's going on in there at uh, any, any moment in your project. It's easy to set up different job assignment methods. You know, you can check your stats at any time. You can see how your project managers are performing. You can see how your translators are doing. And yeah, it does pretty much everything you want. Uh, it ends up fitting your organization like a glove, as we say. So that was just a word about Wurby Translator. Now, without further ado, back to the podcast. When we're talking about the online world and evolving technology, you've recently published an article talking about artificial intelligence and you were talking about 
alternative definitions. We were wondering if you can discuss some of them for us. Sure. Wow, that's a huge topic. Um, how many minutes do I have? Uh, <laughs> five, six. <laughs> okay. All day. Uh, or, <laughs> yeah, no, we. Okay. You know, we were talking about how long the podcast should be, and uh, like speaking of snackable content and customer journeys, some people uh, that we work with are like, "No, the podcast needs to be shorter." And I'm like, well, you know, if the customer journey is listening while they're cooking or on their way to work, then it's okay. You know, uh, we we think that a podcast can be a long snack. Okay, all right, long and, and delightful. Yeah, I know. Full meal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Five long meal. Okay, great. <laughs> right. um, just to address this topic in uh, probably in a fairly unusual way, I'm going to say what is going to be published in one of the magazines I contribute to in a few days now, is that from a globalization perspective, right now, and I started doing that probably one year ago, but now I'm reconsidering artificial intelligence as automated intelligence. Not only because artificial has some sort of negative connotation, for some people, I mean, not for me, but some people say everything that is artificial is not real. And when it's not real, it's not good. You know, well, you know the, you know the say. Um, but I think all the benefits and all the challenges from artificial intelligence for globalization and digital globalization in particular are related to automation. And that's why every time I see some new development, some new progress in terms of AI-driven processes, just to be general here, I can see that the kind of core of all this, all these efforts, it's automation. And that's why I like to relabel artificial intelligence as automated intelligence. Because when you think about one good example, which is the latest generation of machine translation, so the neural machine translation solutions, which, according to some people, will replace human beings in no time, which I don't believe, but okay, that's what some people think. When you see what this latest generation of machine translation uh, solutions does in terms of business, I'm not talking about all the technical specifications here, but what it does for the business, because that's what matters most here. It's actually always increasing the level of automation, the level of automation that you can see or that you can get by automating translation further or faster but also by automating the overall workflow. Because at the end of the day, many people consider neural machine translation or other AI-driven processes as a way to revamp, of course, accelerate, but overall revamp the workflow that I have to deal with to make it not only more, not only faster, of course, better, but also closer to clients. Because AI-driven processes are really based on how to get closer to customers, international customers in this case, since we are talking about uh, digital globalization. And um, for me, every time I look at some new development or some potential use of AI in general, I see the first benefit as automation. So automated intelligence is really what I believe some people should be more focused on uh, rather than just kind of considering that 
uh, AI is going to replace this or that. I think it's going to be a great complement of many different things that are already existing, as I said, to make them faster, better, and closer to customers. So that's a very short answer about how I see AI in the digital globalization industry, because there are specific applications that could be considered for the advertising agencies. There are some applications that could be considered for the fintech industry, etc. But I would start with this automated intelligence perspective to really make AI work for, for the business and not only for the techies. Well, I, I think, too, there's a certain amount of exaggeration that happens because, you know, artificial intelligence is such a buzzword now. So, like, at least in, in the startup world, you know, if your project doesn't say artificial intelligence on it somewhere, you will be less likely to raise your next your next round of funding. So, it, like, do you think that some people are doing things that are related to automation, but which aren't really quote-unquote artificial intelligence and just labeling them as such? I think so. Yes, I, I think so. And that's why I think a good compromise would be to talk about automated intelligence rather than artificial intelligence every time there is something new coming up. Yeah. Um, and also because, you know, as I said, a number of business people are a bit skeptical, if not reluctant, to go for things that are artificial. It's probably very something that has to do with semantics. But personally, I don't think that artificial is the right word to use here with intelligence. As you said, now it's a buzzword, so it's probably too late to change it. But, you know, I, every time I had to work on programs or to lead programs involving AI, I had, of course, to convince the business people. Mm -hmm. Because that's where the funding is coming from. And that's where clients have to be delighted, right? So I probably used AI once or twice, but I was focusing actually more on the business benefits. Like, as I said, automation was my number one benefit, but also productivity, also granularity, uh, relevance, empathy, all things that are kind of resonating much more with business people and eventually with clients. Because these, you know, AI or automated intelligence has to be put into practice for the sake of those customers and for the sake of the business. Otherwise, you know, what is the goal? What is the objective? So uh, you're right. I mean, th there is a great deal of buzz around that. It's good to say that we are doing something in the AI. But personally, I've found much more resonance and much more reaction when I was talking about automation and productivity rather than just artificial. I think people can also like they have better understanding of of what automation is and working ef efficiently. But as you said, AI is kind of unreal and maybe hard to to explain or to really know what you're talking about. Yeah, you know, there, there is another example of one of those fairly abstract concepts, in my opinion. That's just my personal opinion, so don't don't take it as a as a revealed truth. But many people talk about global business. Global business is doing this, global business is doing that. But is global business really tangible? Because global business is up in the air. Business is always happening locally. It is happening in China. It is happening in Russia. It's happening in, in the US. But it's not happening up in the air. So global business is just the aggregation of local business effectiveness. 
if you know what I mean. But some people use global effectiveness as a concept because it's nice to talk about, yes, in terms of global business, we've done this, we've done that. But the real place to be and the real place to execute is local. So again, regarding artificial intelligence, I think it's probably something that I would also consider as up in the air because it's good to kind of find some sort of umbrella to, to say what people do. But, you know, when it comes to the bottom line and when it comes to the actual execution and the actual uh, value for customers and for the business, it's more about automation and productivity than just artificial as an umbrella. Mm-hmm. So what do you see as the future for content marketing and content management uh, in relation to automated intelligence? I see a new way to embrace a trend that is very old, which is to do more with less. And in this case, I would say that content or marketing content and artificial intelligence combined will help probably to decrease the amount of content at some point, not immediately, but at some point, but also to make that content much better, much closer, much more personal for customers. I'm not sure if you experienced that yourself, but in some cases you receive tons of information about a product or a service that you would like maybe to consider and purchase. And some people are complaining it takes a lot of time, it's expensive, etc. And the trend that I'm seeing now, which I believe is going, is going to continue, is to do, okay, why don't we use marketing content combined with artificial intelligence or automated intelligence, as I like to, as I like to say, it, to actually maybe do less content, but with more relevance, with more empathy, with more value for customers. I, I think this combination will get the balance right between the investment that needs to be made in global content, in marketing content specifically, and the, the return on investment, which is the value that is created for customers and, and the business in general. So mm. I think that's going to be the real, the real trend that I see. And I, and I see it coming already now because, you know, uh, when, I'm, when I'm buying some products now, I receive already less information, but much more accurate much more personal because I understand that my profile has been refined. I'm not only considered as a Belgian customer, I'm considered as somebody living in Belgium, living in Brussels, having some habits, doing some things and not doing other things. So that's, that's the way where automation will help a lot. But automation, you know, in, in the framework of this AI uh, effort that everybody's talking about. So uh, doing less with more or doing more with less, depending on how you see it. I like that idea because like, uh, I mean, the world produces so much content right now. Having a little bit less of that would be a good idea because at the rate we're going, if we don't start finding a way to produce less content, then we'll have to make machines to read all the content we're producing. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely right. And, and th th there is a conflicting view right now. Um, there are some people believing or saying that uh, AI is going to help cope with uh, always larger amounts of content. And there are people like me who say that uh, AI is going to help decrease the amount of content by making it more personal and more relevant. And more and, accurate. Uh, yeah, and more accurate. But I think 
both views are correct. It just depends on the type of content. I think AI will help uh, manage a growing amount of content when it comes to, you know, uh, user manuals for some industries, when you have to explain all things in uh, 600 pages at least. And I think in that case, AI will certainly help manage an incremental amount of content. But when it comes to marketing content, I think it's going to be the opposite. AI is going to help decrease the amount of content by making it more personal and more relevant, more accurate, and, and more, more effective eventually. Hmm. Also at the data collection level, I suppose, as well, like with uh, internet-connected devices or um, the like the Alexa in your house. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, there will be there will be an opportunity to leverage automated intelligence to capture content, all sorts of content and all sources of content, in a much more effective way, rather than just collect, as you said, collect the data, collect the content, is is critical, of course. But as I said, digital content is not only about capturing; it's about measuring and using. And I think this is what automated intelligence or AI is going to do or is going to help with uh, is to really kind of um, take, consider all these sources of content and actually create uh, maybe less content eventually, but better and, and more personal, as I said. And, and in, of course, as you said in the, uh, a few minutes ago, I don't think that customers who receive tons of information are going to be more delighted than customers receiving just snackable content, but uh, snackable content that is personal, shareable, valuable to them. Where do you see this playing a role in relation to your globalization strategy? Is automated intelligence like does it relate? Yeah, I think I think. Uh, I mean, digital globalization, uh, I think McKinsey said it very clearly. Digital globalization is the age of data flows. I would probably rephrase it a little bit, and I would say that digital globalization is the age of data and content flows. And for me, dealing with this digital globalization age without automated intelligence, and certainly the, the, next, the next stages of automated intelligence or AI for those who prefer to use the, the official word, is, in, is just impossible. It, it, it has to be that way. Otherwise, it's going to be a business hurdle. So automated intelligence will become a true competitive advantage for those, for companies, for, for organizations who are going global, but also who are, uh, companies that are going global, I'm sorry, but also companies that are really, as I said, they are focusing on what automated intelligence is going to bring to their business. In other words, you know, it's, they, they should avoid probably when they launch a new digital globalization program or initiative, they should avoid making the mistake that a number of companies did when the first CMS were in the marketplace. You remember the content management systems, the, the time of vignette and the interwoven, etc. Many companies were buying those solutions without actually even knowing what to do with them. But they, they wanted to implement, they wanted to buy a CMS because it was hype to get a CMS or multiple CMS in the organization. And I think that's a mistake that a number of companies, a number of uh, digital globalization leaders will not make with AI this time. And I, and I think that's, that's probably a, a great lesson from the, the CMS 
age that we faced not so long ago, actually, but <laughs> I call it the CMS age because I, I, I remember it was so hype at that time. Everybody wanted to implement Vignette or Interwoven. Uh, and when I was talking to those people, very few of them were were actually aware of what they could do with them. So that's was uh, it's always interesting to see, uh, you know, uh, how, how some people want to implement something without even knowing what it what it's going to bring to them. But, okay. mm-hmm. That's so, very interesting. Sorry, but um, we've actually just recently published an article about discussing if artificial intelligence is a hype or any of those other sort of AI-driven technologies, if they are just hype or if they're here to stay. And as you said, I mean, it seems like they're not really hype, but at least we definitely should consider a bit longer if we want to jump right on on the bandwagon or or not, you know, mm-hmm. if it's good to to also have them and induce them or or not. I think you know my, my perspective or my stance regarding AI is that it's going to remain hype as long as it's not tied to the business. You can mm-hmm. talk about AI all the time; it's going to be hype. But if you don't link it to business objectives and to to growth internationally. AI will just remain something hype. It will not become something like automated intelligence, which is, which is actually, you know, I, I could define automated intelligence as AI into action. Yeah. Yeah, like practical AI. Yeah, practical <laughs> AI, yeah. Or, or, uh, or, or anything that could actually create value for the business and for customers using AI. Because otherwise... You can you can use the AI for the sake of using AI because it's high because you like it because you have a team of techies who are passionate about AI. But what about the value? What about the the kind of momentum you need to create in the business among marketeers around communications people about this? It's it's not going to work eventually. Right. Mm-hmm. So speaking of CMSs and this sort of CMS era, in the end, I think what we saw was that CMSs, of course, uh, became really popular and they also scaled down very well. So like nowadays, uh, you know, a small business can very easily manage a multilingual website producing loads and loads of content. Right. And Mm -hmm. I I guess what I'm wondering is uh, like if you were looking into your crystal ball, how soon will automated intelligence really become a powerful tool for larger corporations? And how long will it be until smaller businesses can also harness that kind of technology? Personally, I, I hate looking at my crystal ball, but I will try <laughs> to do that. <laughs> um, I mean, are, are, are large companies right now even benefiting that much from automated intelligence? Or is it still really just a Nashian thing? I think that the major players in AI right now are the bigger or the biggest companies. When you yes. think about what Alibaba does in China, it's huge. I mean, they invest billions, not millions, of billions in AI. Other companies are doing the same, like IBM, Amazon, and, and all these ones. So, uh, But this is because AI requires, still today, a lot of money and a lot of resources. If you look at what Alibaba does in terms of AI for their content, of course, they have, I don't know how many people working in developing that. So that's something that Alibaba is very, very good at doing because, of course, they have a huge availability of people who can do that from China or other other places in the world. So large organizations have some sort of small advantage here. 
because they can have the means and they can have the resources to develop and to leverage uh, AI faster than smaller organizations. Having said that, I believe that startups can also benefit from AI and contribute to the progress of AI by kind of being more agile, because that's something that larger organizations may have more difficulties with. And I know what I'm talking about. When you think about, you know, a company of 50 or 60,000 people, yes, of course, you have a number of resources available, but it's like a big machine. And this big machine needs to, of course, work like a big machine. And if it's a startup of 50 people, having fresh ideas and working in a very agile way or more agile than bigger organizations, they can contribute as much eventually, not immediately, but eventually they can contribute, they can contribute as much to AI progress as large organizations, but from a different perspectives. Agility and uh, creativity will be the assets of small organizations and means and resources will be the assets of larger organizations. Maybe that's your next project. <laughs> uh, it could be. <laughs> could be. Cool. Well, I think we should uh, we should probably wrap up the podcast and keep it at a reasonable, snackable size. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. A, sn- a snackable length. Um, we do have our uh, user meeting coming up in Brussels, and you you live in Brussels too, right? Uh, that's correct. Yeah, I'm based in Brussels. Yeah. Um, well, just for our listeners out there, um, you know, we have our, our user meeting on May 30th, and we have a we have two speaker tracks, and uh, we'd be delighted if anyone wants to join us. You can find out about the user meeting online. But would you like to come to our meeting? I think you should come. There's a lot of uh, cool companies there, cool speakers. It's all about localization and globalization. It's in Brussels, May 30th. I will be delighted to come. And of course, uh, for a change, I will attend a conference where I'm not speaking at, but uh, that's that's going to be a change for me. But uh, yeah, uh, if it's uh, very local, why not? Great. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us on the podcast. And we sure hope to see you at the end of May in Brussels. Thank you. Yep. Thanks. Thanks.